What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wada. When I was a young girl, my older brother read aloud every night to my sister and me. We had many grand adventures every night as we listened to heroic stories that were at times very happy and at times very sad. While our adventures with the books would have been enough, as we got a little older, we added in some spice by taking our reading to new heights, quite literally, as we picked a different place to read each night. And one night, that location was the garage roof. We read in every conceivable location at home and even ventured out into our hometown from time to time. But as exciting as our exotic reading locations were, the true fun was still in the pages of this book. To this day, I credit these reading experiences with helping me to truly see the power of story. At such a deep level, I knew I needed to work through disabilities and struggles to be able to decode those stories for myself. I have a very personal knowledge of the power of reading aloud, as I have seen just how much having a loving sibling reading to me impacted my life. But you don't have to just take my word for it. Research has shown that reading aloud to children helps them to develop larger vocabularies and to increase their understanding of how language is constructed, which builds processing and comprehension skills. While the improvement in reading skills is significant, there are also some great interpersonal benefits, too. Reading aloud supports and enhances the relationship between adults and children. Those moments of cuddling around a great book builds bonds of love with very little effort. There is little doubt that for children, having someone who will read aloud to them is very important, especially for the littlest ones who are just beginning to develop their own literacy. But don't feel like that when your child can't fit on your lap anymore, that they are too old for reading aloud. There is never an age when reading aloud together is not fun and beneficial. So it really doesn't matter if you're reading to a toddler or a teen. Here at Rachel's World, we suggest that you break out a good book, gather around, and tuck in for a great read aloud. When something affects us, we often feel a need to share it. Perhaps a passage from a book or even a poem excites or engages you. You just want to share that excitement by telling someone else about it. Today's episode of Worlds Awaiting is prompted by an event sponsored by Lit World. It's called World Read Aloud Day. Coming up, some of our BYU radio colleagues share passages from their favorite books. We'll begin with Jeff Simpson, co-host of The Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, who reads from L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. In the civilized countries, I believe there are no witches left, nor wizards, nor sorceresses, nor magicians. But you see, the land of Oz has never been civilized, for we are cut off from the rest of the world. Therefore, we still have witches and wizards among us. Who are the wizards? asked Dorothy. Oz himself is the great wizard, answered the witch, sinking her voice to a whisper. He is more powerful than all the rest of us together. He lives in the city of emeralds. Dorothy was going to ask another question, 
But just then the munchkins, who had been standing silently by, gave a loud shout and pointed to the corner of the house where the wicked witch had been lying. What is it? asked the little old woman, and looked and began to laugh. The feet of the dead witch had disappeared entirely, and nothing was left but the silver shoes. Oh, she was so old, explained the witch of the north, that she dried up quickly in the sun. That is the end of her. But the silver shoes are yours, and you shall have them to wear. She reached down and picked up the shoes, and after shaking the dust out of them, handed them to Dorothy. The witch of the east was proud of those silver shoes, said one of the munchkins, and there is some charm connected with them, but what it is we never knew. Dorothy carried the shoes into the house and placed them on the table. Then she came out again to the munchkins and said, I am anxious to get back to my aunt and uncle, for I am sure they will worry about me. Can you help me find my way? The munchkins and the witch first looked at one another, and then at Dorothy, and then shook their heads. At the east, not far from here, said one, there is a great desert, and none could live to cross it. It is the same at the south, said another, for I have been there and seen it. The south is the country of the quadlings. I am told, said the third man, that it is the same at the west, and that country, where the Winkles live, is ruled by the wicked witch of the west, who would make you her slave if you passed her way. The north is my home, said the old lady, and at its edge is the same great desert that surrounds this land of Oz. I'm afraid, my dear, you will have to live with us. Dorothy began to sob at this, for she felt lonely among all these strange people. Her tears seemed to grieve the kind-hearted munchkins, for they immediately took out their handkerchiefs and began to weep also. As for the little old woman, she took off her cap and balanced the point on the end of her nose while she counted one, two, three, in a solemn voice. At once the cap changed to a slate, on which was written in big white chalk marks, Let Dorothy go to the City of Emeralds. The little old woman took the slate from her nose, and having read the words on it, asked, Is your name Dorothy, my dear? Yes, answered the child, looking up and drying her tears. Then you must go to the City of Emeralds. Perhaps Oz will help you. That was Jeff Simpson co-host of the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, reading from L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. We're reading aloud today on Worlds Awaiting. Next, Tenry Norton, producer of BYU Radio's Top of Mind, shares a passage from a favorite book of hers, Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. 
Mrs. Darling first heard of Peter when she was tidying up her children's minds. It is the nightly custom of every good mother, after her children are asleep, to rummage in their minds and put things straight for the next morning, repacking into their proper places the many articles that have wandered during the day. If you could keep awake, but of course you can't, you would see your own mother doing this, and you would find it very interesting to watch her. It is quite like tidying up drawers. You would see her on her knees, I expect, lingering humorously over some of your contents, wondering where on earth you had picked this thing up, making discoveries sweet and not so sweet, pressing this to her cheek as if it were as nice as a kitten, and hurriedly stowing that out of sight. When you wake in the morning, the naughtiness and evil passions with which you went to bed have been folded up small and placed at the bottom of your mind, and on the top, beautifully aired, are spread your prettier thoughts, ready for you to put on. Occasionally, in her travels through her children's minds, Mrs. Darling found things she could not understand, and of these, quite the most perplexing was the word Peter. She knew of no Peter, and yet he was here and there, in John and Michael's minds, while Wendy's began to be scrawled all over with him. The name stood out in bolder letters than any of the other words, and as Mrs. Darling gazed, she felt that it had an oddly cocky appearance. Yes, he is rather cocky, Wendy admitted with regret. Her mother had been questioning her. But who is he, my pet? He is Peter Pan, you know, mother. At first, Mrs. Darling did not know, but after thinking back into her childhood, she remembered a Peter Pan who was said to live with the fairies. There were odd stories about him, as that when children died, he went part of the way with them so that they should not be frightened. She had believed in him at the time, but now that she was married and full of sense, she quite doubted whether there was any such person. Soon the troublesome boy gave Mrs. Darling quite a shock. Children have the strangest adventures without being troubled by them. Some leaves of a tree had been found on the nursery floor, which certainly were not there when the children went to bed, and Mrs. Darling was puzzling over them when Wendy said, with a tolerant smile, I do believe that it is that Peter again. Whatever do you mean, Wendy? It is so naughty of him not to wipe, Wendy said, sighing. She was a tidy child. She explained in quite a matter-of-fact way that she thought Peter sometimes came to the nursery in the night and sat on the foot of her bed and played on his pipes to her. Unfortunately, she never woke, so she didn't know how she knew. She just knew. Certainly Wendy had been dreaming. But Wendy had not been dreaming, as the very next night showed, the night on which the extraordinary adventures of these children may be said to have begun. On the night we speak of, all the children were once more in bed. It happened to be Nana's evening off, and Mrs. Darling had bathed them and sung to them till one by one they had let go of her hand and slid away into the land of sleep. All were looking so safe and cozy that she smiled at her fears now and sat down tranquilly by the fire to sew. It was something for Michael, who on his birthday was getting into shirts. The fire was warm, however, and the nursery dimly lit by three nightlights, and presently the sewing lay on Mrs. Darling's lap. Then her head nodded, oh, so gracefully. She was asleep. Look at the four of them, Wendy and Michael over there, John here, and Mrs. Darling by the fire. There should have been a fourth nightlight. 
While she slept, she had a dream. She dreamt that the Neverland had come too near, and that a strange boy had broken through from it. He did not alarm her, for she thought she had seen him before in the faces of many women who have no children. Perhaps he is to be found in the faces of some mothers also. But in her dream, he had rent the film that obscures the Neverland, and she saw Wendy and John and Michael peeping through the gap. The dream by itself would have been a trifle, but while she was dreaming, the window of the nursery blew open, and a boy did drop on the floor. He was accompanied by a strange light, no bigger than your fist, which darted about the room like a living thing. And I think it must have been this light that wakened Mrs. Darling. She started up with a cry and saw the boy, and somehow she knew at once that he was Peter Pan. He was a lovely boy, clad in skeleton leaves and the juices that ooze out of trees. But the most entrancing thing about him was that he had all his first teeth. When he saw she was a grown-up, he gnashed the little pearls at her. Tenery Norton, producer of BYU Radio's Top of Mind, reading from Peter Pan by J.M. Barry. Let's continue our reading aloud session with another team member from Top of Mind, Reed Wolfley. Reed reads, which isn't redundant, a passage from Alice in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll. The first thing I've got to do, said Alice to herself as she wandered about in the wood, is to grow to my right size again. And the second thing is to find my way into that lovely garden. I suppose I ought to eat or drink something or other, but the great question is what? Alice looked all around her at the flowers and the blades of grass, but she could not see anything that looked like the right thing to eat or drink under the circumstances. There was a large mushroom growing near her, about the same height as herself. She stretched herself up on tiptoe and peeped over the edge, and her eyes immediately met those of a large blue caterpillar that was sitting on the top with its arms folded, quietly smoking a long hookah and taking not the smallest notice of her or anything else. At last the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth and addressed Alice in a languid, sleepy voice. "'Who are you?' said the caterpillar. Alice replied rather shyly, "'I I hardly know, sir, just at present. At least I know who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that?' said the caterpillar sternly. "'Explain yourself.' "'I can't explain myself, I'm afraid, sir,' said Alice.' "'Because I'm not myself. "'You see, being so many different sizes in a day is very confusing.' "'She drew herself up and said very gravely, "'I think you ought to tell me who you are first. "'Why?' said the caterpillar, "'as Alice could not think of a very good reason, "'and the caterpillar seemed to be in a very unpleasant state of mind, "'she turned away. "'Come back!' the caterpillar called after her. I've something important to say. Alice turned and came back again. Keep your temper, said the caterpillar. Is that all, said Alice, swallowing down her anger as well as she could. No, said the caterpillar. It unfolded its arms, took the hookah out of its mouth again, and said, So, you think you're changed, do you? I'm afraid I am, sir, said Alice. I can't remember things as I used, 
and I don't keep the same size for ten minutes together. What size do you want to be? Asked the caterpillar. Oh, I'm not particular as to size, Alice hastily replied. Only one doesn't like changing so often, you know. I should like to be a little larger, sir, if you wouldn't mind," said Alice. Three inches is such a wretched height to be. It is a very good height indeed," said the caterpillar angrily, rearing itself upright as it spoke. It was exactly three inches high. In a minute or two, the caterpillar got down off the mushroom and crawled away into the grass, merely remarking as it went, "One side will make you grow taller." And the other side will make you grow shorter. One side of what? The other side of what? Thought Alice to herself. Of the mushroom, said the caterpillar, just as if she had asked it aloud. And in another moment, it was out of sight. Alice remained looking thoughtfully at the mushroom for a minute, trying to make out which were the two sides of it. At last, she stretched her arms round it as far as they would go and broke off a bit with the edge of each hand. And now, which is which? She said to herself and nibbled a little of the right-hand bit to try the effect. The next moment, she felt a violent blow underneath her chin. It had struck her foot. She was a good deal frightened by this very sudden change, and as she was shrinking rapidly, so she set to work at once to eat some of the other bit. Her chin was pressed so closely against her foot that there was hardly room to open her mouth. But she did it at last and managed to swallow a morsel of the left-hand bit. Come, my head's free at last," said Alice. But all she could see when she looked down was an immense length of neck, which seemed to rise like a stalk out of the sea of green leaves that lay far below her. Where have my shoulders got to? Oh, my poor hands! How is it I can't see you? She was delighted to find that her neck would bend about easily in any direction, like a serpent. She had just succeeded in curving it down into a graceful zigzag, and was going to dive in among the leaves when a sharp hiss made her draw back in a hurry. A large pigeon had flown into her face and was beating her violently with its wings. We're reading aloud today on Worlds Awaiting, and few pieces of literature are as conducive to reading aloud as Alice in Wonderland. That was Reed Wolfley reading some Lewis Carroll to us. Up next, our own Rachel Wadham, sharing Beatrix Potter's "The Tale of Mr. Jeremy Fisher." Once upon a time, there was a frog called Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He lived in a little damp house amongst the buttercups at the edge of the pond. The water was all slippy, sloppy in the larder and in the back passage, but Mr. Jeremy liked getting his feet wet. Nobody ever scolded him, and he never caught a cold. He was quite pleased when he looked out and saw large drops of rain splashing in the pond. "I will get some worms and go fishing and catch a dish of minnows for my dinner," said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. "If I catch more than five fish, I will invite my friends, Mr. Alderman Tortoise and Sir Isaac Newton. The Alderman, however, eats salad." Mr. Jeremy put on a mackintosh and a pair of shiny galoshes. He took his rod and basket and set off with enormous hops to the place where he kept his boat. The boat was round and green and very like the other lily leaves. It was tied to a water plant in the middle of the pond. Mr. Jeremy took a reed pole and pushed the boat out into open water. I know a good place for minnows," said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. 
Mr. Jeremy stuck his pole in the mud and fastened his boat to it. Then he settled himself cross-legged and arranged his fishing tackle. He had the dearest little red float. His rod was a tough stalk of grass. His line was a fine, long, white horsehair. And he tied a little wriggling worm at the end. The rain trickled down his back, and for nearly an hour he stared at the float. This is getting tiresome, I think. I should like some lunch, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. He punted back again amongst the water plants and took some lunch out of his basket. I will eat a butterfly sandwich and wait until the shower is over, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. A great big water beetle came up underneath the lily leaf and tweaked the toe of one of his galoshes. Mr. Jeremy crossed his legs up shorter, out of reach, and went on eating his sandwich. Once or twice something moved about with a rustle and a splash amongst the rushes at the side of the pond. I trust that is not a rat, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. I think I had better get away from here. Mr. Jeremy shoved the boat out again a little way and dropped in the bait. There was a bite almost directly. The float gave a tremendous bobbit. A minnow, a minnow! I have him by the nose, cried Mr. Jeremy Fisher, jerking up his rod. But what a horrible surprise! Instead of a smooth, fat minnow, Mr. Jeremy landed little Jack Sharp, the stickleback covered with spines. The stickleback floundered about the boat, pricking and snapping until he was quite out of breath. Then he jumped back into the water. And a shoal of other little fishes put their heads out and laughed at Mr. Jeremy Fisher. And while Mr. Jeremy sat disconsolately on the edge of his boat, sucking his sore fingers and peering down into the water, a much worse thing happened. A really frightful thing it would have been if Mr. Jeremy had not been wearing a Macintosh. A great, big, enormous trout came up, ker-plop, with a splash, and it seized Mr. Jeremy with a snap. Ow, ow, ow! And then it turned and dived down to the bottom of the pond. But the trout was so displeased with the taste of the Macintosh that in less than half a minute it spat him out again, and the only thing it swallowed was Mr. Jeremy's galoshes. Mr. Jeremy bounced up to the surface of the water like a cork and the bubbles out of a soda water bottle, and he swam with all his might to the edge of the pond. He scrambled out on the first bank he came to, and he hopped home across the meadow with his Macintosh all in tatters. What a mercy that was not a pike, said Mr. Jeremy Fisher. I have lost my rod and basket, but it does not much matter, for I am sure I should never have dared to go fishing again. He put some sticking plaster on his fingers, and his friends both came to dinner. He could not offer them fish, but he had something else in his larder. Sir Isaac Newton wore his black and gold waistcoat. Mr. Alderman Tortoise brought a salad with him in a string bag. And instead of a nice dish of minnows, they had a roasted grasshopper with ladybird sauce, which frogs consider a beautiful treat. But I think it must have been nasty. The End Rachel Wadham reading Beatrix Potter's The Tale of Mr. Jeremy Fisher to wrap up our in-house reading aloud bash, Cole Wissinger of our World's Awaiting Team reads a picture book by Kristen Crow called Bedtime in the Swamp.
I was sitting by a swamp just a humming a tune with the fireflies dancing neath the fat gold moon when off in the distance was a splashing sound. So I stood on my tippy toes and looked around. I heard splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom. A splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom. Well, my hands were shaken and my heartbeat raced as I leapt through the marshes and a monster chased. When it followed behind me in the sludgy slime, it was rockin' and a swayin' the entire time. It went splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom, splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom. So I hid in the branches of a willow tree, and I saw my kid sister staring up at me. She said, Ma said to fetch you, cause it's time for bed. But sis, there's a monster in the swamp, I said. We heard a splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom. Splish splash rumba rumba bim bam boom. Then out crept a shadow from the swampy place. We were scared till we saw our older brother's face. He said, Ma said to fetch you cause it's time for bed. Quick, hide! There's a monster in the swamp, we said. We heard splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Well, we looked for the monster, wandering where he went, till we spied our two cousins that our ma had sent, saying, we came to fetch you cause it's time for bed. Watch out, there's a monster in the swamp, we said. We heard splish splash, rumba rumba, bim bam boom. Splish splash, rumba rumba, bim bam boom. So we all sat and shivered neath the fat gold moon, and the crickets were chirping, and the catfish were slurping, and the frogs were a croaking, and our feet were a soaking, and the tree was a stooping, and my eyelids were a drooping. And we all clung together, full of dread and fear. I said, Hey, do you think we'll spend all night up here? And then we heard. Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. And out sprang the monster that had made us scared with its big feet a-stompin' and its sharp teeth bared. I yelled, help, it's the creature from the Black Lagoon. But just when we thought we faced a certain doom... We heard splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. Then out of the darkness stomped my dear old ma. She burst through the cattails and she cried, Aha! I've been trying to get you children home to bed, and I find you a-hiding in this tree instead. And we went, Crunch, crash, tumble, tumble, split, splat, sploom. Crunch, crash, tumble, tumble, split, splat, sploom. Well, Ma looked over us saying, no one's hurt, but I don't think I've ever seen so much dirt. Now all of you go and get washed up for bed. And that goes for your new playmate too, she said. So he went splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. And we went splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. I went splish, splash, rumba, rumba, bim, bam, boom. 
Nicole Wissinger of the World's Awaiting Team reading Bedtime in the Swamp by Kristen Crow. We hope you enjoyed our World's Awaiting nod to World Read Aloud Day. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app, and at byuradio.org.